Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Today, I want to take some spot, some time sharing something with you from my heart to your heart. And so if you've prepared, if you've come prepared today with your notebook and your pen, I'd like you actually to put your pen inside your notebook this morning and I'd like you to close it. And if you've come with a device so that you can take notes, I'd like you to put it on silent and put it away. Because this morning I want to speak one-on-one. I don't want to teach you something new today. I have a few scriptures. I'll read them for you. We'll put them up on the screen so you can follow. And if you really want to catch the notes and that sort of thing, I'll be happy to email my notes to you, or you can listen to the so If you've really been touched, you can listen to it again later. But I actually don't want you to be distracted by anyone or anything else. I want you to just sit where you are, relax, and lend me your ears for a few minutes. I want to share with you a testimony and a story of the love of Jesus this morning, of the love of God. And I want to remind you of the greatness of His love for you. That is as simple or as complicated as my message is going to be with you this morning. See, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where we're coming from, It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter how much you have in your bank account or how much you don't have in your bank account. Jesus sees you. And Jesus loves you completely. I want to contrast three people, three characters that we see in the Bible, all of them disciples of Jesus. These are guys who spent three years in the presence of Jesus And I want you to to note the different responses that they had to being with the Messiah, to being in His presence, to being with Him. And the first one that I'd like to talk to you about is Judas. Judas Iscariot, the one who ultimately betrayed Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus loved him? Jesus called him, didn't He? Jesus chose Judas. He said, you come follow me. And he taught him to become a fisher of men. Judas was, those, one, was, was numbered with those who went out and performed miracles, who was casting out demons. And he carried significant influence with Christ, within Christ's ministry team. So Christ's ministry team of the 12 and the larger 70, however you want to look at that, who traveled around with him, Judas was a pretty influential guy because Judas held, held the purse strings. Yeah, Judas was used to working with money. He was a tax collector. And he was also Jesus' treasurer. He held the little treasury box, well, actually it might have been a big one, we don't know, for Jesus' ministry. And he was responsible for giving out money and for for feeding the poor. And it's really interesting that at the Last Supper, when Judas got up to leave to go and betray Jesus, the other said, where's he going? And Sam said, well, he must be going to go give money to the poor. Why would they think that? Because he was Mr. Moneybags. He was the one who had the kitty. It was the treasurer... And he also followed Jesus' ministry just like the rest. He did the stuff. But what we see in this man's life is that right at the end, his heart, though he was there, though he was present, was missing something. 
On one hand, you could say maybe his heart was never fully in it. Maybe you can blame the devil because the Bible says when it came time for him to betray Jesus, the devil entered him and led him to do that. And maybe you can, you can argue that one. I, I don't want to go into the theology of, of why Judas betrayed Christ. But what we do see is that when the opportunity came for self-advancement, he took it. When the opportunity came for him to, make, to, to gain something that was near and dear to his heart, certainly more, more dear than Jesus himself, Judas was willing to walk, Judas was willing to walk away from Jesus. He was willing to forsake him and ultimately betray him to gain hold of something that was truly precious for him. The second person I want to look at with you is a guy named Simon, who Jesus called Peter. Also one of the twelve disciples. And you know what? Jesus loved him, just like he loved Judas. Jesus loved Simon Peter, and he called him. He was a fisherman. He was one of those who learned how to fish for men. And the Bible tells us a lot about how much and how deeply and how passionately Peter loved Jesus and the zeal with which Peter followed and longed to serve Jesus. Peter was the one who had that great revelation the one day when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, who do men say that I am? And he said, oh, some say uh, Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And he said, who do you say that I am? You, those who are close to me, who do you believe that I am? And Peter piped up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, Simon Peter, you did not receive this from flesh and blood. This is not of your making. This is not of your... Your intellect, I know you, you didn't come up with that by yourself. You might have been insulted by that, actually. But he said to him, this is a revelation from God that I am the Christ, and on this rock we will build the church. And Peter is feeling really good about himself. We see Peter is high and low. He is now all excited. He had this incredible... None of the other 12, by the way, had this revelation. He had the revelation. He was now the Mr. Stuff. And so Jesus says, and yes, and because I'm the Christ, I'm going to have to go and be crucified. And Peter says, no, no, no! Heaven forbid that you should have to die. And at that moment, from wonderful revelation, what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Poor guy. Yo, talk about a downer. Such zeal. Now he's feeling really full of himself, and the next minute, boy, oh boy, from his lofty perch of self-opinion, he falls. And Jesus rebukes him. Peter is also the one who bragged about his devotion and his love for Jesus. We see in Luke 22, we'll read this together, I'll read you some, some portions of the scripture. What's happening here is Jesus, they've, they've had the supper together where he's washed their feet, they've gone into the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is wanting his disciples to pray, but ultimately, uh, you know, before that happened, as, that, as that's happening, this conversation takes place, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus is prophesying here. He knows what's coming for Peter. He knows there's going to be a fall. And he says, when you've returned, when you've repented, when you've come back, strengthen your brothers. That's what he says to him. But here's Peter's response. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
Do you think Peter meant it? Yeah, I think in the moment he meant it. I think he was passionate about Jesus. I will go with you to the very end. How many of us have prayed prayers like that before? Jesus, all for you. You name it. I'm there. I'm in it. You win it. Then he said, I'll tell you, Peter, the rooster shall crow this day uh, three times, this day before you. Hold on. Peter, the, roo the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you, that you know me, or before, that you, before you deny three times that you know me. In other words, before the rooster crows, before tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. You're saying now you're going to come with me to prison, you'll come with me to death, but before morning comes, you will have already denied me three times. You see, Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was coming. Maybe these words were spoken by Jesus to serve to strengthen Peter's resolve within himself. You know, Peter, be encouraged. Maybe that's why when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter still was there fighting at his side. You know, Jesus said these words to Peter. Maybe he was thinking, no, 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 that's never going to happen. And now these soldiers come out. And again, who is on the front? Who's doing the zealous, passionate thing? It's Peter. And the soldiers, Judas, you know, gives, gives Jesus the kiss. The soldiers take him and, no, this can't happen. And he takes his sword out and he goes for the soldier. He's not a very good at using it, clearly. He got his ear. And again, in the midst of his zeal and his passion to avenge Jesus, Jesus says, Peter, no, you've got this wrong. And he heals the soldier's ear. Very confused now, this Peter. Zealous, in love with Jesus, but very confused. Can you imagine after this the self-doubt that must be going through Peter's mind? Can you imagine his insecurities? He must have thought he had done a brave and a noble thing for Christ, that this would have been worthy of commendation. But no. And we see this personal uncertainty and this personal insecurity play itself out in the next scene. They take Jesus away to Herod's house. Or is the high priest's house? Whose house is it? Someone's house. Someone important. Big house. Caiaphas' house. Luke 22, verse 54 to 62 says this. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. There you go. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, so he's watching what's going on, but he's not quite there. And when they kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him, sat by the fire and looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. She identified Peter as one of his disciples. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a while, another saw him and said, You, are also, you, are, you also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And finally there, after about an hour had passed, Another confidently con affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. What a defining moment. What a realization. After all my promises and all my zeal, I did exactly what he said I was going to do. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I missed verse 61. 
Verse 61 says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered. You know, I wonder, I wonder what was in Jesus' eyes when Peter looked at him. I wonder what was in Jesus' eyes when Peter looked at him. I don't think for a moment it was anger. I don't think for a moment it was even pain for himself. But I think in that moment, Jesus, in his eyes, communicated to Peter a recognition of the anguish he was clearly feeling inside. Empathy. Sympathy, even. And so Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. Peter, despite his zeal, despite his self-effort, despite everything he wanted to do for Jesus, realized even his best was never going to be good enough. And in the moment that he himself, just like Judas, denied Jesus, he saw the frailty and the brokenness in his own heart. And it broke him. He wept bitterly. Now, it's... It's beautiful to see, if you carry on reading the story, after Jesus is crucified, after he rises again, there's a time, where, there's a day where he meets with Peter again, and they have a fish fry on the beach for breakfast, and Jesus talks again to Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape love me? And he says, Lord, I love you. And he uses a different word. I think it's the word phileo. There's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a brotherly love, and I love you like that, but I can't say that I love you like you love me. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. In that moment, Jesus is restoring Peter because Peter is such a broken man. And Jesus again calls out that love, that passion, and that zeal that Peter had. Who was the one who preached the first sermon? Once again, it was Peter who led 3,000 to Christ. Peter, James, and John, they went all over the place preaching and, and just raising heaven. Not raising hell, they were raising heaven all over the place where they were going. Peter was at the forefront. Peter was the head because Jesus restored him. But before that could happen, Peter had to be broken. He had to realize that no matter how hard he tried, no matter how many qualifications or how much he put into it, it didn't matter. Third person I want to look at this morning briefly is John. John, the youngest of all the disciples. He was the kid. John and his brother James were both mama's boys. It was their mommy who came to Jesus and said, One day when you're risen, can my son sit either side of you? But yet they were also known as the sons of thunder. But when you read, as I've said, when you read the scriptures and you read through the gospels about what the Bible says about Peter, it focuses so much on how much Peter loved God and all the ways that he wanted to prove it and all the way that he, that he wanted to show it. There are six phrases that occur in the New Testament concerning John, all written by himself. I'll read you one of them. It says this, John 13, 23, he says, Now, he's talking about the Last Supper. There was, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. There's something very different about John. He didn't brag about his love for Jesus. But as the young one, he was absolutely secure in the fact that Jesus loved him. He refers to himself as the one that Jesus 
loved. Now, whether it was Judas and his divided heart, we can think of Thomas and his stubborn, unbelieving heart. We can think of Peter's fervently zealous heart or John's tender and very receptive heart to the love and to the person of Jesus. The fact is that Jesus loved and died for them all just as they were. He didn't seek to try and change them first. He received them as they were. And He loved them completely as they were. And He died for them each and every one as they were. Today I want to say to you that Jesus completely loves you too. And that God loves you just as you are. You see, you and I often identify ourselves with, within even these three characters that I've shared. We often see and are aware of our weaknesses, our failures, and our frailties. And we can kind of identify with all of them. We can identify with Judas when we experience the disappointment of not getting from God what it is we think we deserve, what it is we think we need from God, what it is he, we think He should do for us, that sense of entitlement. When our loyalty is tested, a loyalty to Him in a situation where He prompts us, but yet for the sake of our own image or our own comfort or our own loss, we fail to obey. We can identify with Judas when we've compromised our convictions for personal gain. We can identify with Him, with that area of weakness. We can identify with Peter when we get caught up in the striving of trying to please God. And I mean, this looks so much better, doesn't it? But it's exactly the same thing. It looks so much better. You know, being in church every single Sunday, knowing all the words to all the songs, being able to quote the scripture, being able to do all of this stuff, and I'm in Bible study on Wednesday, and I'm doing this stuff, and everybody can see that I'm doing this stuff because they must not see that I'm doing it, right? Because it's, of course, it's them that I'm, it's God that I'm doing it for, right? We can be like Peter when the weakness of our own flesh is made plain to us how in the midst of that moment we come away from church and we've had this incredible encounter with the Word of God always breathed in our heart and the next moment we fall. The next moment we say something unkind and we tear somebody down. The next moment we blatantly sin. We realize this torment and this struggle that goes on even within ourselves. We, we, we can identify with Peter when we try in our effort to muster faith to believe, to do what it is that God wants us to do, and we see just how weak it, our faith truly is when we try to do it ourselves. We can identify with Peter. We can identify with Judas. And we can also identify with John. When we realize that none of our self-effort matters in the light of Jesus' love for us, man, I remember when that revelation struck my heart, I became a completely new man. Completely changed me. That as I am, I didn't need to do anything or be anyone to earn or to please Jesus. I could just be loved as I was. John was utterly convinced of Christ's love for him, and he rested in it. Utterly convinced. Secure. Whole. Not having to prove anything to anyone. It's the same revelation that led the Apostle Paul, who met Jesus on the road one day, uh, to write this to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, I'll read to you from the Passion Translation. He said, For it was only through this wonderful grace that we believed in Him. 
It was only through His wonderful grace that we believed in Him. Nothing we did could ever earn the salvation, for it was the gracious gift from God that brought, brought us to Christ. So no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. Salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. It is the reward for simply believing and receiving. Did you get that today? Amen. Salvation, blessing, grace are not God's rewards for, for, for doing the right things and for not doing the wrong things. So those are the things that come to us when we believe them and we receive them. Those things as we receive them are what enable us to turn from some things towards other things, to walk in that blessing and to do the good works of God that produce blessing in us, for us, through us, to others. I want to, to know that this message I'm sharing you this morning, with you this morning was born out of an encounter I had with God this week where I'd been spending some time in fasting and in praying, sharing a lot of my concerns with Him, Roll, trying to roll my burdens over, trying to understand and to work through. If you, if you know me, I'm a very practical person. I need details. I want to know how to work things out for God. And as I stand with the responsibility of shepherding the spiritual family and I'm looking into 2021, I'm saying, God, where and how are you leading and what is it that you want me to focus on and what is it that you're wanting us to do as a leadership? And, 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 and all these kind of questions are rolling over into my heart. God, what do you want me to focus on? Where do, you want me to, where, where do you want us to go? What do you want me f to do? And all these kinds of things, praying and, and praying in the Spirit and waiting for, for that verse. You know that verse? Every Bible has that verse, which just when you read it, it goes, ping, and everything makes sense, and everything falls into, and you know exactly what to do and exactly how to do it for the next five years. Have you all found that verse? No, no. I still look for it, though. You know what God said to me? It just disarmed me. It completely stripped me. He said, Michael, I don't want anything from you. I just want you. That's it. All my lofty ideas fell to the floor. Every agenda crumbled in his presence. As my dad looked at me and just said, my boy, all I want is you. You're going on about all this stuff. I just want you. I want your heart. I want your heart in its fullness. I want you to love me completely because I love you completely without limits. I know, I know what you said to Helen. I've forgiven you already. So has she. Move on. I know what you said to Karen and to Carl. I know what you did. I know. I know. I know how you tried. I know how well you have fasted these days, my boy. And none of that matters. None of that matters. All I want is you. I was reminded of the greatness of Christ's love for me. That as I am, he died for me. I was reminded of my inability to deserve or earn any of that love because God knows I can be like Peter sometimes. 
I was reminded of the simple requirement of full surrender to that indescribable love. You see, this surrender to His love that I'm talking about is not the kind of surrender that we think in our minds we, we have to lay all of this stuff down and we have to give all of these things up. No, the surrender that God calls for from you and from me is simply about letting go of every thought or reason that tries to justify why it is that God could possibly delight in me. That's it. Because the truth is, He does. And you're never going to understand why. You're never going to see yourself as good enough. You're never going to see yourself as worthy enough. And no matter how much you try to make yourself good enough or worthy enough, God could not possibly love you any more than He does right now at this moment in time. Completely as you are. That's why the same apostle who, who, who brags about how Jesus loved him writes in 1 John 4 verse 10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is why when Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus, in, in Revelation chapter 2, He says, Guys, you're doing all the right stuff. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and aren't, and you've, you've put all the right systems in place, but you've lost the plot along the way because you got caught up in the things. You got caught up in the going to church and in the singing of the songs and into the, the, the ritualistic praying of your prayers and reading your things and doing the stuff, and you've left your first love. What is the first love? You know, for me, the first love is not the first time I met Jesus and I loved Him. My first love is the first time I realized that He loved me. That's first love. It comes from Him first. I've left and I've forgotten that, I, that God delights in me. There is no higher revelation than this. Nothing. That God truly, really, totally, deeply, passionately loves you. So much that He would send His Son to pay the price for your sin and for my sin, that we could have intimate, eternal relationship with Him. Isn't that incredible? That revelation sets you free from the fear of doing the wrong thing, and it sets you free from the pressure to do the right thing. I want you to know, sometimes I struggle with that fear of doing the wrong thing. I'm responsible for more than just myself. It's myself, it's my family, it's the spiritual family. I don't want to make the wrong choice, Lord God. That's a fearful position. God says, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? Do you think I'm going to lead you that way? I need to say this to you this morning, church. The only condition that God places upon us receiving the fullness of His love and His blessing is that we believe it and surrender to it. That's the only condition. The only condition. But yet this is where many of us struggle. We doubt our ability to fully surrender to it because we know that sometimes we're a lot like Peter. We know that sometimes we can be a bit like Judas. And we also wonder whether God will truly accept our surrender from hearts that are struggling in that place. Andrew Murray says this. He says, When you yield yourself in absolute surrender to the love of God, let it be with the faith that God does now accept it. I'm here to tell you this morning, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, 
If you are willing to open your heart to the love of Jesus, He will accept it. Know that. His Bible says so. Your heart completely, wholly, and entirely. A man called Brendan, uh, Brennan Manning wrote a book called Ragamuffin Gospel about how the, he, you know, he, he came to finally realize that the gospel was for all people. He says this, the most radical demand of Christian faith, the most radical demand of Christian faith is that in this moment, in your brokenness and shallow faith, you would allow yourself to be the object of the vast delight of the risen God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that so beautiful and so powerful? The most radical demand of Christian faith is that in this moment, in your brokenness and your shallow faith, you will allow yourself to be the object of the vast delight of the risen God. I want to say to you, because there's a few times in my life that I can look back on, days that I remember the love of God broke through and overwhelmed me. And my revelation grew and my understanding grew and He called me deeper into intimacy. Every time laying, laying aside more of who I am and what I hold dear because here's why. Once you experience the true and genuine love of Christ, nothing else in the world will ever again seem as beautiful or desirable. There is nothing like it. There is no one like Him. There is nothing that compares with the love of God. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.